Hey, everybody, and welcome to the You Were Born for This podcast with Father John Ricardo. That's me, Father John, host and executive director of Acts 29, where we talk about anything and everything related to transforming parishes. And on this Easter Monday, as always, I'm joined with uh, my co-host, Nick and Mary, but we have a very special guest. We got Deacon Steve, who's been in our conference room many times when we've recorded in the past, but we've never actually given him a mic, but we're giving him a mic. Brother, it's great to have you with us today. Great to be here. Thanks, Father John. Absolutely. Nick, what's the topic today that uh, Deacon Steve is so eager to join us on? Yeah, Easter. Jesus is risen. There is work to do. That's our topic today, Father John. And as always, will you open us in prayer? Indeed. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we want to thank you in the midst of all that's going on in the world right now and in our country uh, with this pandemic for the startling and spectacular truth that your son Jesus is risen triumphantly from the dead, that he's conquered the power of the grave, that he's bound the strong man, and that he's poured his spirit upon us and into us so that we would continue the work that he began on that Easter Sunday, namely the work of recreating this universe, which you so dearly love. We thank you for creating us to be alive at this time and this moment in history. We just ask your anointing upon us and especially to be with all those who are both suffering in this time, as well as those uh, heroic men and women who are putting themselves on the front lines in countless ways, most especially the doctors and the nurses and the first responders. Lord, watch over them, honor them, protect them, uh, let them know your good pleasure. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Our topic today is all about Easter. Jesus is risen. There is work to do. And so we're going we're gonna to break that open by really using four, looking at this through four questions. Uh, the first one is, what's the message of Easter? In other words, what are we really celebrating? Uh, two, why was the message credible in the first days of Christianity? Uh, three, why is the message not credible today? And four, how can we make the resurrection believable today? So Father John, let's tackle that first big question. What really is the message of Easter? Yeah, what are we celebrating, right? I mean, so it's just uh, so crucial to get clear. Uh, the, the first point of the message of Easter is simply this. Jesus is risen, right? That he's bodily raised from the dead. And we're going to use, uh, all throughout this podcast, we're going to draw upon the extraordinary work of N.T. Wright, who's probably the, uh, one of the greatest theologians and biblical scholars today. And he's got a couple of great books, one of which is something that most people aren't going to read because it's so big. It's called The Resurrection of the Son of God, which is about a thousand pages. If you're looking for something to read in this pandemic while you're social distancing, <laughs> you might want to pick this one up. Um, but right in this book, uh, which is, again, the best thing I think I've ever seen and that most people uh, would say they've seen on the resurrection, he's just trying to hone down the messages this, that um, the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb, the encounters of uh, the risen Jesus with uh, a number of people, including people who did not believe in him, most especially a man named Saul, this is the only historically plausible explanation for how it is that Christianity could have grown. As Fleming Rutledge, another uh, one of our favorite authors, often says, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, there is almost certainly no way 
anybody would know his name. We don't know the name of anybody else who was crucified except that guy whose ankle bone we found in an ossuary a couple of years ago who's got a, a nail nailed through his uh, ankle. And so we see how crucifixions were done. So, so the message of Easter is not that, uh, you know, hey, I have this really warm feeling that I think God loves me or uh, that they saw a ghost or uh, that they had dreams of Jesus alive in heaven. You know, as someone who spent a fair amount of time living overseas, um, especially living in Rome and going down to Pompeii or seeing the Colosseum or whatnot, it just really has a way of helping you understand, you know, the ancients weren't stupid. It's not like these people um, just, you know, like blindly swallowed myths like, oh yeah, dead people come back to life. It's not like we're the first people who understood that, that dead people don't come back to life. They knew this. They knew it better than we do. They were around death a lot more than we are. We don't, we don't see death the way they did. They lived with it every day. We kind of put it away in a corner. It's in our face right now because of the pandemic, but this isn't the normal experience. So, um, the message of Easter is Jesus is bodily raised. He's begun the work of recreation and he is sending you and me out, right? That's the message. And, and I think we found, we, we wanted to share with people, there's a, there's a synthesis of N.T. Wright's big book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, that's in a smaller book called Surprised by Hope. And he makes uh, nine little points in there that we just thought, they're too good not to share. We're going to read them. So we're just going to kind of go around. So here's Wright's little synopsis on uh, the resurrection and the credibility of it. Here, I'll go first. So here he says, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die. Someone gave him a drug that made him look like he was dead and he revived in the tomb. Answer, uh, Roman soldiers knew how to kill people and no disciple would have been fooled by a half-drugged, beat-up Jesus into thinking he defeated death and inaugurated the kingdom. Mm. Mary, what's the next one? I'll go next. So um, second smaller argument is when the women went to the tomb, they met someone else, perhaps James, Jesus's brother, who looked like him. And in the half-light, they thought it was Jesus himself. The answer is they would have noticed that soon enough. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Stevie, what's the next one? Hey, the voice of the other Steve argument. Mitchell. Here he comes. Hey. Great debut. <laughs> the third argument is Jesus only, <laughs> only appeared to people who believed in him. Answer. The accounts make it clear that Thomas and Paul especially do not belong in that category. Actually, none of Jesus' followers believed after his death that he was really the Messiah let alone that he was, um, that he was in any sense divine. Amen. Nick? So the accounts we have are biased. Answer, so is all history, all journalism. Every photo is taken by someone from some angle. I absolutely love that one. I mean, we, we, we just think like, yeah, I mean, we just can't trust the Christian sources. They're kind of biased. I mean, like everything has, I have an agenda for crying out loud. So do you, so does everybody. The question is, uh, is just acknowledging that and then seeing what are the reasons that we have to believe what it is that's being put forth. Um, next one. Lots of people have visions of someone they love who has just died. This was just what happened to the disciples. That's the objection. Answer, mm -hmm. they knew perfectly well about things like that. And they had language for it. They would say, it's his angel. 
or it's his spirit or his ghost, they wouldn't have said he's been raised from the dead. And Mary? Yeah, so this is perhaps the most popular. What actually happened was that they had some kind of rich, quote unquote, spiritual experience, which they interpreted through Jewish categories. Jesus, after all, really was alive spiritually, and they were still in touch with him. Here's the answer. That is simply a description of a noble death followed by a platonic immortality. Resurrection was and is the defeat of death, not simply a nicer description of it. And it's something that happens some while after the moment of death, not immediately. So again, those are seven uh, or six rather uh, comments that Wright makes in his book, Surprised by Hope. He says three more things real quickly. He just says, so Jewish tombs, especially those of the martyrs, were venerated and they often became shrines. There is no sign whatever of that having happened with Jesus's grave. As well, the early church's emphasis on the first day of the week as their special day is very hard to explain, he says, unless something striking really did happen, that a gradual or even sudden dawning of faith is hardly sufficient to explain it. And, and third and lastly, the disciples were hardly likely to go out and suffer and die for a belief that wasn't firmly anchored in fact. This is an important point, though subject to the weaknesses that they might have been genuinely mistaken, to be sure. They believed the resurrection of Jesus to be a fact and they acted on that belief. But we know, so it would be said, that they were wrong. So these are some of the summaries from Wright. Uh, hopefully they're helpful. Hopefully they tease up people to either pick up some of his works, maybe check out some of his videos on YouTube. He's just an extraordinary scholar. But there's a third message. So the, so the message of Easter, right? Jesus is risen, not just his message. He's alive. There's reasons behind this. It's, this is not an irrational belief. The ancients weren't stupid. But we really want to highlight, and we're going to get into this as we go along, the message of Easter is also simply this. It's the beginning of the work of recreation. So it's not like Jesus is, you know, showing off that day and saying something like, hey, look what I could do in your life if I really wanted to act. No, no, no. It's the beginning of the recreation of the universe and it's his commissioning to you and me that there is work for us to do. But we're going to get more to that in a few minutes. Great. So that brings us to the conclusion of that first question, right? What's the message of Easter? So now let's dive in and open up this second question. Why was the message credible in the early church? Yeah, you know, you know I think um, it was credible because they understood what C.S. Lewis writes about in his book, Mere Christianity. And this is an amazing quote, and some of you might be familiar with it because we use it quite often in our work. And C.S. Lewis writes, enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part and get a load of this in a great campaign of sabotage. Mary, that's great. In a great campaign of sabotage. And, I, and the early church were actually agents of sabotage, instruments in God's hands, and radical change. They brought about radical change. I mean, they turned the Roman Empire, the culture, upside down. I mean, some would uh, refer to the glory of the Roman Empire. But 
Um, you know, there was a lot of inequality and just poverty rampant. Rome was about Roman citizens, men. Men who were at the top of the food chain. Women, children, widows, slaves, all at the bottom of the chain. And you know, there are a number of things that we can highlight here. Uh, but for the sake of brevity, brevity I want to look at uh, four. Four particular acts of sabotage that the early church engaged in that turned the Roman Empire, turned that culture upside down. One, one was medicine, which is really appropriate to what is happening right today, right? I mean, Christians took care of the sick. Nobody took care of the sick. And they did it often at the cost of their own lives. I mean, the church instituted the first systems of healthcare. For the, and, and it was for the poor because the rich in that time had their own doctors, but nobody took care of the poor. You know, uh, education, you know, kind of falls in that category. Uh, the rich had tutors. Their kids were taught to read. Nobody was teaching the poor and the marginalized except the Christians how to read. One, so they could access scripture for sure. Um, but it was way out of poverty. Um, the third act of sabotage, which everybody took notice of, um, was how they took care of the poor. Some of the oldest church records we have are from Rome in the year 251. And it was a list of people that belonged to the church. And they had listed 46 priests, 56 exorcists and doorkeepers and other people that served. And just a list of all kinds of people. And at the bottom of the list were 1,500 widows and needy persons that were members of that church. In other words, women and poor that were being taken care of uh, by the church. So I don't know how they got that list. They must have been collecting envelopes back then too, but I, that's another topic. So, <laughs> but the, and then the Apostle Paul, it's clear in all of his writings, he was taking up collections wherever he went uh, among all the Gentile churches that he visited or established in Macedonia and Corinth. He was collecting money because there were needy poor women, widows in Jerusalem, and he took that money to them, which really kind of leads us into that fourth act of sabotage. It's one of my favorite, really, and that's unity. Um, one of Paul's major themes, unity across, across every conceivable barrier. He said in Galatians uh, chapter 3, In Christ there is no Jew or Greek, neither slave nor free, male or female. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. And they move from being sworn enemies to true brothers and sisters in Christ. In uh, one of my favorite passages in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that in Christ, um, the dividing wall of enmity is broken down. The, and the dividing wall of enmity that he's talking about is between Jews and Greeks and uh, Gentiles. They hated each other. What are other words for enmity? Hostility, animus, loathing, to detest, to hate. If only this could happen today. If only the walls of hatred could be brought down today.
Amen. And I know Mary's chomping at the bit to tell us uh, another uh, act of sabotage. Steve, as you're, as you're talking right now, one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, I, I don't think most Christians know our family history, right? So all these things that you mentioned, and you just touched on four, right? And, and Mary's going to bring up a fifth one in a moment. We can talk about so many more. People don't know how did the church grow, right? So we, we don't know the story that since, you know, roughly October of 64 until the year 312, for those 250 so years, Christianity is an illegal superstition in the Roman Empire. It, there's a law on the books that says right. it is not licit for a Christian to exist. Now, to be sure, there's only like four major periods of persecution, but that's a law. Christianity is illegal, and yet it grew. How did it grow? It didn't grow by force. It didn't grow by weapons. It didn't grow by violence. You know, we have this expression that uh, we often repeat in our culture today that history is written by the winners. And sometimes that's true, but it's not true in the history of the early church. They didn't win anything. They won martyrdom. That's what they won. They won getting skinned alive, <laughs> thrown off a building, beheaded, boiled in oil, thrown to the lions. Like this doesn't look like victory, but the resurrection of Jesus that's what motivated people to go, hey, you know what? I'll go care for the poor. I don't right. care if I die. Why? Because death can't hold me, right? Amen. Nobody ever, I mean, ever took up a collection for people in another part of the world to whom they were not related. Like, you didn't have any money? Stinks to be you, doesn't it? Nope, not with the Christians. And, you know, suddenly they realized, those are my brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And as you just said, this point about unity like Paul's not speaking poetry here, right? There's a wall in the temple in Jerusalem with an inscription on it that said mm -hmm. a Gentile who passes this point in the temple is responsible for his own death. These people really hated each other and they became friends because of the power of the Holy Spirit poured out upon them after Jesus's resurrection from the dead. And I'll get off my high horse here in a minute and let Mary tell us this fifth reason. But the, the church right now has an amazing opportunity to speak prophetically into the divide in our country because no one should know, like we know as disciples of Jesus, how people can go from being enemies to not simply tolerating each other, but loving each other, whether that's in the racial divide in our country or in countless other divides. The church should be speaking prophetically saying, we know this can happen because we used to hate too and we don't hate anymore. And we don't do it because of the power of Jesus risen from the dead who now dwells in us, right? Amen. Amen. Man, I've been dying to preach. Oh, sorry. Preach it, brother. All right. Sorry. That was my Easter homily. So, Mary, you got a fifth reason. And this is another part of the story that we just never hear in this world today. So what's the fifth reason? Yeah. So um, some of you might be familiar with uh, sociologist Rodney uh, Stark. He um, examines the rise of Christianity in a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he contends that the single biggest reason for the spread of Christianity in the first centuries was women. Women flocked to the church. And as you just said, Father John, like, like that's not the narrative we hear today. In the Roman Empire, uh, like almost all of the ancient world, saw women as fit for one purpose. It was very utilitarian, right? It was to give her citizens and soldiers. And by that we meant they, they, were, they were there 
to have children. And by and large, um, they were not thought of as being intellectually and physically equal uh, to men. But the gospel brought something absolutely new and revolutionary between the relationship between men and women as God always intended it to be. And that message is transformative. So, you know, we hear in Genesis, both men and women were created in the image and likeness of God, both men and women redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And as we hear later in the teachings of John Paul, you know, they were, were equal in dignity, though we're very different, we're equal in dignity, right? And, and boy, if we could get that message out in our culture too today, I mean, we still see utilitarian attitudes, you know, um, around women. Um, but I just think that's huge. And we don't talk about that. It's like, another part of the family story that's not known, right? Right, and we right. need to hear that. Totally. Nick, there's another point uh, that's so important to make uh, just about uh, why it was that it was so credible in the early church. What's that? Oh, miracles, right? I mean, miracles uh, backed up, right? Word and deed, we talk about this. Um, it, miracles backed up the words being proclaimed. And throughout the Acts of the Apostles, we see countless times miracles uh, demonstrating the kingdom of God physically coming present here on earth. Those signs pointing to the reality of heaven, of Jesus, who has, who has conquered death, who has conquered sin, who has freed us. So, so it, makes, it makes real, it makes tangible this thing that's being proclaimed. And, um, you know, you open up Acts. I mean, there are so many stories of signs and wonders playing a central role in the growth of the early church, right? I mean, you just think about the, we talked about this before the, the podcast today, Father John, the, it's almost hilarious. Paul's preaching. This, this, this man's growing tired. He preaches so long, the guy falls out the window because he falls asleep. He dies. Second floor. Second floor, right? I mean, like, wow, that's, that's, that must have been pretty boring. But it didn't get boring because Paul goes over there, ministers to this man, raises him from the dead, and keeps on preaching. So, like, like these, these, these signs and wonders scattered throughout. I mean, handkerchiefs and aprons being taken to people. You, you would have thought that was Paul's clue to like, I should probably wrap this up right now. I mean, people are beginning <laughs> to cry. But no, he just kept going. That's the funny part about that story, right? I mean, he raises a guy dead and then boom, back into now part two of my- I'm not, losing, I'm not losing any of my audience. Get back <laughs> up here. <laughs> walk out on me, will you? you? Walk out on me, fall asleep and die on my homily. No, that's great. Yeah, so there's so many, there's so many miracles. I mean, the, the idea that a, a handkerchief would deliver someone from a demon, mm. right? Mm. Or, or, or cure a disease. I mean- you know, it's all the more pertinent right now, right? We're facing a pandemic. I mean, um, yes, God, please use the natural means of, 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 of vaccines and, and um, you know, whatever medicines and cures can come out um, from our, our medical field. But just as much, I mean, you have a sick family member, lay hands in Jesus' name, you know, right. uh, stick this be gone, illness be gone. So anyway, uh, not to belabor the point, but it's like this, where miracles happen, the church is growing even still today. And it is right. absolutely essential in the proclamation of the gospel. I, I think we find, you know, uh, like many people, right? There's a great line in Acts 17. It's, uh, it's in verse 6 when um, after Paul is preaching the gospel, the response of the people who are hearing him, and this is not meant to be a positive thing, 
uh, as he says it is, these men are turning the world upside down. That's what the early church did. It inverted the Roman Empire. All of a sudden, massive transformation came. What Paul did, what the early church did, was it showed forth, again, as Wright would say, a strikingly different way of being human. And because it did so, it was at one and the same time extraordinarily attractive to those who were, as you said earlier, Steve, on the low end of the totem pole. And at the same time, it was amazingly threatening to those who liked things the way they were and who acknowledged a Lord whose name was different than Jesus. So that's the message of the early church. That's why it was credible. And it's going to lead into what we're going to talk to at the end. But uh, there's a third question before we get to how we can make it credible. What's that, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That third question is, why isn't the message of the resurrection credible today? Right? I mean, we're talking about its credibility then, talking about how the ancient world saw things, so, so it, it, which is unique, something we don't really think about much today. But, but this, this message wasn't just credible then, it's credible now. So why isn't it? Yeah, well, it's not because it's irrational, because that's not true. It's not because it's unreasonable. That's not true. As Wright says, he, as he kind of walks through the arguments, um, there, are solid, there, there are as solid historical reasons to believe this to be true as there are for any event in history, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. The challenge, quite frankly, is those things that you just enumerated, that we just went through, all those different points about how the church turned the world upside down, they're not happening right now. Or at least they're not, they're not as prevalent as they should be. Where they are happening, it's credible. But by and large, I think the tragedy of the church is we just don't look any different from the world around us. We, we're, we're divided as all get out. We sound like other people. We're condemning. We, we show uh, indifference about the poor and the sick. Um, we, we can look lukewarm, we look compromised, we sound like the world. We, we don't look like Jesus, in short, right? Mm-hmm. I think Gandhi, I think Gandhi said that too. He said something like, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Mm-hmm. What a sad commentary, right? On us who don't look any different than anybody else. Yeah, and to be clear, like this isn't like you people out there. You're like you don't look like Jesus. I mean, it's, I hear Gandhi, and I'm looking right at me as I'm looking at uh, how we're doing our Zoom call. I see my face in front of this. I don't look like Jesus. You know, you guys most of the time you look like Jesus, but that, that's the scandal, right? We, that's right? we cause people to stumble in the church oftentimes because we, we don't look like them. Yeah, we just don't look like them. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking of, uh, there's a great line from uh, Kiko Arguello, who is the founder of the neo-catechumenate movement. And Arguello, at least as I remember the story, was doing, uh, he was an atheist who comes to Christianity, comes to faith, and then he was doing uh, mission work, I think in the slums, and I think it was in Madrid, although I might have some of those details wrong. And he was seeing tremendous things happen. I mean, like prostitutes and pimps reconciling and becoming friends and leaving their lives and, you know, drug gangs and whatnot, beginning to go through massive conversions and becoming friends. And uh, as, as I remember hearing the story, I think he got called in by, you know, one of the, the leaders of the church, one of the prelates, a, a bishop, I think it was. And he just said, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> like, how are you doing this, this ministry amongst these people? And Arguello's answer as it was recounted to me, was uh, I have become convinced that people need signs of faith that don't require faith. In other words, things that 
people will see who even though they don't believe, when they see them, it leads them to go, only God could do this. And the two signs of faith that don't require faith that he stressed were forgiveness and real unity. And that's what he was seeing. And that's what we were talking about in the early church. And that's what the church needs to be demonstrating right now. And that leads us to this fourth question, which is the good part and which is really going to be what it is we want to challenge people with. What's that fourth part, Nick? Yeah, it's how can we make it believable today, right? In other words, we're saying, how can we build for the kingdom right now? And especially in the middle of what we're living through in this pandemic, you know, what is it, what's, what's required of us? How can we make this believable? Yeah, and, 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 you know, we're going to touch on a couple of things right now and hopefully give some ideas. But the, the first thing that we would say, and it's, it's what we've been putting out on our websites for the last, uh, you know, week or two, and it's the hallmark, it's the first principle of everything we do in our ministry in Acts 29 is we have got to, as Christians, know, quote unquote, the story, right? I think one of the things this pandemic is making clear is most, most Christians, I think, I think this is safe to say, I hope it's not too much of a, of a stretch. Most Christians tend to think more or less like their worldly neighbors about most things. There's a few things that we think like, uh, with the mind of scripture about, but we tend to be more deeply influenced by the world around us than we do by a biblical vision of reality. Does that make sense to you guys? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's why we try to, to lead with kind of what we, we call the kerygma, or we don't call it the kerygma, the church does. Uh, we call it created, captured, rescued, and response. We got to know the story. We got to find a way to share the story with people because it is the message of the gospel, which enables us, especially in tough times, to not give into anxiety and to not give into fear, right? So that's why we lead with preaching the story. But like, it's not enough to know the story. The words are important, as, as we said, but you need deeds too. And so we're going to talk about some of those deeds. And um, again, it's N.T. Wright in a lot of his different works. He makes this great distinction, which I think is helpful. You know, we, we don't want to create this uh, illusion that we can become utopian here on earth. Like, until Jesus comes back in glory, the world is going to be broken. When he comes back, he will put everything right. And what a glorious day that will be, right? But until then, there's work for you and me to do. And the work is to build, here's the way Wright puts it, for the kingdom. So the distinction here is, remember that stupid little song? Sorry, whoever wrote it. Um, Let us build the city of God. Right. Steve, you want to sing a few bars? No, don't. Don't no, sing. Yeah, you, don't want that. you don't want that. You don't want that. So, you know, we, most of us have heard that song, you know, let us yeah. build the city of God. You know, our tears will be turned into dancing. I mean, it's a great, it sounds great, but it's not true. Like you can't build the city of God. Right. Only God can build the city of God, but you can build for the city of God. Meaning we can use all of those gifts and talents that God has given us, natural, supernatural to be even now, right now, at this minute, in the middle of a pandemic with social distancing, agents of transformation in God's hands to continue the work of recreation, which Jesus began on Easter Sunday, right? Exactly right. And one of the key requirements for this to happen in us so that we can then make a credible case for Jesus, not just, and when I say case, I don't mean just merely intellectual, though that's helpful, right? Merely rational. I mean, I mean, um, that supernatural grace. And so what's required is my transformation. And that only comes from the Holy Spirit, God's grace working in me, right? I mean, we look at Acts, 
chapter one. I mean, Jesus, here he is, he's, 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 he is ascending to heaven and he says, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. When the Spirit comes, he will then empower them. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then that will give them the ability to witness in the way they need to, in, the, in that convincing manner. So um, the first thing that the Holy Spirit does is he, is he helps me to know what Jesus did for me and that this, this is specifically for me, right? Shows me who I am, who God is. He gives me my identity. And then he equips me with his gifts and, and, and through friendship with Jesus to bring the gospel to others, both through words and deeds. And so I'm now able to suddenly have access to the father. I'm, I'm now a son and living as a son, I can hear my father. I can hear my father saying things like, say this, do that, right? I mean, when Peter looks at this, this crippled man, he's looking at him through the lens of his relationship with his father. God can do something about this crippled situation, a lifelong cripple. He says, I don't have silver and gold to give you, but what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And now this man is healed. So in that same way, both by virtue, ver- development of virtue in me is a movement of grace. So too is the power of God in me to, to bring the kingdom. Yeah. And, you know, just touching really quickly on that passage you were alluding to in Acts 1. Um, and I know uh, maybe this was set up uh, a thought that I think you got, Steve, is, you know, Acts 1, uh, verse 11. So it's the ascension of Jesus. I think this is supposed to be a, another one of those hysterical passages in the Bible, right? That we just, you know, don't understand what's happening. So here's Jesus. He's kind of lifting up or whatever this looks like, right? He's disappearing from us. And the apostles are watching him disappear. And these two men show up. And so I picture like, you know, the Lord's up in the cloud or whatever's going on. The apostles are there watching. These two men come up to the apostles and go, uh, why are you guys looking up in the sky? Like, don't you know you're supposed to be doing something right now? And they're like, oh, didn't know that, you know? And then comes the spirit. And then, as you just kind of started to talk about, they go out and they get to work being agents of right. recreation. And Steve, I know you had a thought on that of, of how it is we can do that today, right? Sure. I mean, God builds, God builds God's kingdom to be sure. But the way he ordered the world, the way he, for whatever crazy reason, is he does it through his creatures. He does it through his image bearers. That's us, you know? Um, through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the power of the Holy Spirit, Nick was just talking about, he's equipped us for, this, for his great project. This is his project of building for his kingdom. And um, the thing to remember is that everything we do, every act of love, of mm-hmm. gratitude, of kindness, every act of justice, everything we do toward putting the world right, all art, all beauty, everything we create, build, every deed, word that spreads the gospel, that builds up the church, embraces holiness rather than corruption, that makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of it, all of it will be swept up and somehow brought into this, the new heaven and the new earth, God's new creation. And we're, we're celebrating Easter just like Jesus's earthly body was swept up and brought into his uh, 
resurrected body, wounds and all. It's all going to be, nothing's wasted, nothing's lost. God will sweep up everything holy, everything good, everything beautiful into his new creation. And, and this doesn't have to be uh, like heroic and grand. No. It can be little things, right, Mary? Like, like you, you were talking before we got on, there's little things that we can do right now in the middle of the pandemic with social distancing and all that we're going through to build for the kingdom. What are some of those things? Yeah. You know, I want to go back. So we're all like honing in on Acts chapter one and a passage that's always struck me is uh, verse eight, uh, where we hear, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So put in your city. Hmm. You will be my witnesses in Des Moines. You will be my witnesses in Omaha. You will be my witnesses in Dallas, Detroit, Seattle, wherever. So how can God use you wherever you are now? So, you know, all of us are, um, I think we're moved uh, with just great gratitude when we walk into the grocery store and you have the men and the women who are behind the counter until just recently without any protective gear um, who are helping you get your goods packaged and out. And so it's thanking them. Thank you so much for being here, Jennifer. God bless you. Thank you for being here. It's our doctors. It's our nurses. It's our firemen, right? Just, you know, thanking them, the people who are, who are making masks, who are making shields. I think Ford Motor Company is certainly one of those companies that's retooling. You know, these are men and women who are doing heroic things. They're building for the kingdom. And as you said, Deacon Steve, nothing is wasted. Nothing will be forgotten. And I don't know about you. Sometimes I get a little bit weary of the technology in these days because that's the only way that we can stay in touch. But a simple text, you know, sharing mm -hmm. a video, sharing a passage, checking in on people. If you're walking around the neighborhood, you know, maybe just putting a note in your neighbor's mailbox that you haven't seen in a couple days. I think one of the one one of the graces among many in this pandemic is that I think we touched upon this earlier that our counterfeit gods have been so exposed mm -hmm. and to the degree that we get free from those we can be free for the mission that mm -hmm. gospel mandate to go out and it doesn't have to be complex it's just like you know random acts of love and kindness and john of the cross says at the end of our lives we're going to be judged on one thing did we love mm -hmm. and god sees everything he sees all these little acts of love and gratitude and I pray it pleases him in these yep. days of great trial and suffering. And we know it does, right? I mean, so, it, so the people who are, those of you who are on the front lines, you know, whether you're first responders, doctors, nurses, uh, firefighters, I mean, we are just thanking God for you. And know that your, your work is not unnoticed by God. Those of you going to work in grocery stores, like whether we thank you or not, please God, we do when we're there, but that's not unnoticed by God. Little acts that we're doing right now to try to um, restore humanity and to bring things about in the way that they're supposed to be, like God is keeping all of this and he's going to honor it one day and he's going to reward it. And in the meantime, you and I are being asked to do whatever it is that God's equipped us for, wherever he's placed us so as to uh, the way we, we say it here in Acts 29 is to bring things into conformity mm. with how the father originally intended it to be. You know, whether you're a, an, an attorney or a judge or a, 
in the medical profession or you work on the assembly line or you're a stay-at-home dad or mom, like ask the Lord continually, Lord, use me today. Let my words, my thoughts, my actions mm-hmm. be such that everything I do say and think is done in such a way as to bring it into conformity with how you created us to be. Mm-hmm. And then we look for the glorious return of, uh, of the King who will come back and who will put things to right. So guys, any parting thoughts? This has been a great podcast and uh, I just love, I love talking about the reality of Jesus risen, Amen. right? This is, this is, the, this is the hope, Amen. right? That's why we're animated for crying out loud in the midst of what's going on. Like death doesn't win. Amen. Right. Right. Something that comes to mind is uh, Paul the sixth. I think, I think it was in his letter evangelization in the, the modern world said modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. Mm. If he does listen to teachers, it's because they're witnesses. And the other thought that comes to mind as Mary was uh, talking was, I think it was uh, uh, Mother Teresa that said, you know, you don't have to do extraordinary things. Just do ordinary things with great love. And um, I, I had this image that the ordinary things that are done today with great love in God's new created heaven and earth well, you're going to be able to see the reality of those things with, with great love. They might seem like nothing much today, but in his new world, it's going to look spectacular. That act that he sweeps up into his new heaven and new earth, it's going to look spectacular. It's going to look, you're going to see it how God saw it. The moment you did it with great love, it's going to be spectacular. Amen. You know, Steve, as I'm hearing you talk, you know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about your beautiful wife who's making, what, 2,000 masks? She's making masks. Yes. It's just so beautiful. Yes. And there are so many people doing little things like this that we don't know anything about, but God does. And all of you who are doing these things, um, keep persevering because nothing done in the Lord is done in vain. This has been a a joy, folks. We we pray that the... uh, the truth, the reality of Jesus risen bodily from the dead, triumphant over the powers of sin and death brings you hope in the middle of this uh, uh, often anxious and fearful time that we find ourselves uh, walking in. But remember this as always, huh? Do not be afraid. God is with you. You were born for this. Amen.